The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Although the headlines may be focused elsewhere, brave, determined Ukrainians are still battling to defend their homeland against Russian troops. They're fighting not only for their country, but on the front lines against one of the world's most dangerous aggressors. On this side of those headlines, the United States and Europe are standing with Ukraine. On the other side is a network of American adversaries working to undermine the ideals of rules-based international order. Two of the most dangerous and brutal dictatorships in the world, Iran and North Korea, have joined forces with Putin to support Russia's war efforts. Iran by building factories in Russia to pump out new drones, North Korea by sending munitions to help Putin rearm his forces. At its core, this is a war of ideals. Ukraine is fighting for freedom and the right to choose their own destiny through democratically elected institutions. Russia is not only fighting to erase Ukraine nation as we know it. If Putin succeeds, he'll be turning back the clock on international law around the world. The stakes could not be higher. With time of the essence, I want to thank all of our witnesses for appearing before us today. I know that each of you and your teams are doing incredible work in the face of very challenging circumstances. I hope this hearing provides a chance to talk about why Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine remains an urgent and dangerous threat to United States security interests, why the partnership between the United States and Ukraine is so cri critical, and why the Senate must pass supplemental funding for Ukraine along with Israel, Taiwan, and other priorities. This supplemental funding will strengthen governance and anti-corruption systems. It will improve the resilience of our economies and our energy supply. It will support efforts to come out of the other side of this war ready for Ukraine to join EU and also NATO. But this investment in Ukraine goes far beyond its borders. By degrading Russia's military capabilities, we are also degrading the capabilities of those who Russia works with, like Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. We see these actors in concert, not in isolation, which is why we need to consider the whole supplemental package. In short, providing this funding is not a, a case of assistance or charity. Without any American troops on the ground, Ukraine fighters have already exposed Russia's weaknesses and its failures. Continued funding is vitally important for our partners, for our allies, and for reaffirming America's leadership. Moreover, the Biden administration has been very careful with the American taxpayer dollars we have invested thus far in Ukraine. U.S. personnel on the ground in Ukraine are focused on oversight, including three inspector generals. Last week, Ambassador Brink told Fox News that no American-provided assistance, including security assistance, humanitarian assistance, or direct budgetary support, has been used for anything other than its intended purpose. Finally, helping Ukraine strengthens Americans' credibility with our allies. It shows our partners we are reliable to stand by their side when times get tough. And it puts the United States on the right side of history. Defending the liberty and sovereignty of Ukraine in the face of brutal, unprovoked Russian aggression. So to our witnesses, I hope you will tell us your thoughts on the importance of passing a supplemental funding request the urgency of passing that, 
and the importance of the United States security interest. I am optimistic we're going to pass a supplemental, but I would like to hear what you think the effects of a delay would be. I look forward to your testimony, and that let me turn it over to my friend and my colleague, uh, Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And uh, to the witnesses, I want to join the chairman in thanking you. You have an important job uh, in helping everyone uh, come together on this issue and do what's right for the American people and for national security. It's important uh, for this committee and the American people to fully understand how Russia's war in Ukraine affects American security. This is different from simply making the case for supporting Ukraine as it fights for freedom. Uh, this is a balancing matter that all of us who work in national security uh, must work towards. We are not and we cannot be the policemen of the world. On the other hand, it is also important that we always keep an eye on what's happening in other countries, particularly with countries friendly to us and uh, friend, uh, ones uh, who enter into defense uh, agreements with us. It is incredibly important. We all know there's a number of wars going on in the world we are not participating in the, in the vast majority of them, but we do have to participate when our national security demands it. I hope our witnesses can be crystal clear with us about the realities on the ground in Ukraine and what a Russian victory would mean for America's national security and economic prosperity. I hope you'll talk about uh, our, our defense agreements and the uh, importance of those defense agreements and the alliances that we make and how those alliances affect our national security and how our reputation affects how those uh, defense agreements are carried out. There's global, there's global competition for power and influence. Russia, Iran, and China are all trying to weaken the United States and our intent on dominating regions that are vital to our interests, Europe, Middle East, and Asia. In that vein, I hope uh, you as witnesses can lay out Russia's linkages with Hamas and Hezbollah and the deepening ties among Russia, Iran, and China. It is more and more evident that our enemies are working together against the United States and our allies. They have the same basic goal, to undermine American leadership and eliminate the basic freedoms that have helped the entire world prosper. The attacks against Israel have highlighted the connection between these actors. The Biden administration has refused to enforce sanctions against Iran, which has allowed more than $80 billion to flow from China to Iran. This money Iran has used not to help its people, but to finance weapons given to Hamas and to Russia. Russia has helped Iran improve its drones and missiles. The very weapons used against uh, Israelis and uh, Russia's proxy Wagner has offered to equip Hamas. We cannot help Israel without confronting these realities. Sadly, the administration thought it could embrace Iran, fail to enforce Iran oil sanctions, and unfreeze funds with no impacts on our efforts in Ukraine and in Russia. No wonder Iran felt free to send weapons to Russia to Russian warehouses. Chinese purchases of Iran oil and, Russians ga and Russian gas help both countries to circumvent international sanctions. And increasingly, we are seeing growing alignment between these actors in multilateral meetings as they present themselves as a credible alternative to the West. The administration should connect these dots and synchronize strategies, but such connections have been really lacking in recent years. I've been asking the administration for some time now to clearly articulate with details its goals in supporting Ukraine. The American people deserve this clarity, and yet we haven't heard it. We need details and reasons, and I hope you'll provide that today. 
I hope to hear a frank assessment of success and failures on both the Russian and Ukrainian sides and a layout of, of the military capacities and the needs of both sides. You need to paint a clear picture of how uh, and what Ukraine needs to win this war and explain the President's requested supplemental package, how it's designed to address those needs and help them achieve their goal. I have been very satisfied with the quality and the level of oversight that we, the U.S. government, has had over our aid to Ukraine. I am, however, very much unhappy with the way that has been uh, uh, not produced to the American people. And I would hope you'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, this, uh, members of this committee held a uh, uh, meeting with the in inspector generals who laid out for us what they have done from the beginning. And that, uh, th their efforts are incredibly uh, uh, well done. Corruption, corruption with U.S. dollars will not be tolerated. And I'm glad to see detailed information that gives me confidence that our money is being used appropriately. The IGs provided that information. Technology and new approaches to oversight have also allowed the U.S. military to maintain unprecedented levels of accountability over our weapons. The inspectors general from state USAID and the Defense Department have been very open with this committee about their investigations, and we should all thank them for the work. The United States faces grave risks, and the world is going to become more dangerous. We are seeing multiple independent threats to U.S. national security converging. In the case of Russia and Ukraine, I fear the administration has no plan, and if there is one, it's long past time that we heard it. I sincerely hope you will fully address these concerns in your discussions today. With that, Mr. Chairman, back to you. Well, let me thank Senator Risch. Uh, I hope you can take from our opening comments that the two of us are committed to do everything we can to help Ukraine and to provide the type of assistance and leadership in the United States to demonstrate that not only to Ukraine but to the international community. So I look forward to working with Senator Risch and the members of this committee in order to, for our actions to reflect uh, that objective. We have three witnesses today. I want to first thank each of them for their public service, their commitment to what they do, and they're extremely uh, engaged and spending a great deal of their efforts to help America, and we thank you very much for that. Your entire statements will be made part of our record. We ask that you try to summarize in about five minutes. Let me introduce you in the order in which you will present your testimony. First, Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasia Affairs, James O'Brien. Assistant Secretary O'Brien assumed his role just last month after serving as Sanctions Coordinator at the State Department. He is a former career employee of the department, receiving numerous performance awards and served two previous U.S. administrations as special presidential envoy for hostages and for the Balkans. His long and successful career has allowed him to hit the ground running. Next would be Assistant Secretary uh, for Energy Resources, Jeffrey R. Pyatt. No stranger to this committee, career diplomat Assistant Secretary Pyatt has been in his current role since September 2022. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Greece and Ukraine. He's held numerous leadership positions throughout the department and won numerous awards. And our third witness is Assistant Administrator Aaron McGee, who serves as the Assistant Administrator in the Bureau of Europe and Eurasia at USAID. Prior to this position, she was the U.S. Ambassador to Papua New Guinea, and to the Solomon Islands, prior to her ambassador appointments as a member of the Senior Foreign Service, she served in numerous leadership roles throughout USAID and the embassies abroad. Before her U.S. government career, 
she de developed private sector experience, including throughout the former Soviet Union. So we'll start with Secretary O'Brien. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member for the strong statements of support. I'll try to address four questions that I hope will lay the framework for what we're discussing today um, and, and provide some detail. The first is, why Ukraine? And I think you've begun to touch on this, but it's, Ukraine is a place where we are on the cutting edge of freedom today. Since World War II, America's worked to widen the range of freedom, but also of stability on the European continent. This is the base from which we work around the world, along with our allies in Korea, Japan, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So this is stability, as opposed to the 100 years before we began this effort, when Europe was a source of instability that forced America into two world wars. It's also about standing up for core human values. These aren't just lines on a map. Ask the citizens of Bucha and Irpin about the torture and human rights abuses they suffered or the children stolen from their parents in the areas Russia seeks to annex. So with all of those things, we feel it's very important we work there, we work in Ukraine. But this is also the core foundation of America's strength around the world the coalition that we are leading in with regard to Ukraine and that Ukraine hopes to join, that is the basis from which we will confront threats to the international order, whether they emanate from the European space or the Indo-Pacific space going forward. So if we turn our backs here, we are turning our backs on those who would confront us around the, the globe. Secondly, how does what we're discussing now help Ukraine win? Well, There'll be in other settings, maybe classified settings, to discuss military tactics. But it's clear President Putin is now playing a waiting game. He thinks if he can wait for our elections or for Ukraine to get tired, that then he can survive. So as Secretary Blinken said today, um, what we need to do are several things at the same time. We need Ukraine to continue fighting and thrive while this war goes on and to soften Russia's hold on parts of Ukraine so that when the decisive battles come, they are able to, to fight effectively. How, does, how do we do that? Well, the supplemental uh, uh, we've proposed goes for through the end of our fiscal year in the fall of 24 and sets Ukraine up to thrive through 2024. It also provides to an answer to the all-out war that Putin is waging against Ukraine. Let me just offer one example. This is around the Black Sea and Crimea. Ukraine has, through its own ingenuity and with weapons that have been provided, loosened Russia's grip. Russia tried to blockade the ability of Ukraine to export. But now Ukraine is starting to export more grain, more metals, and this is enabling it to pay for more of its war itself. So just a few numbers as we go through this. Ukraine is hoping to get about 8 million tons of grain and metals out through the Black Sea um, over the course of the next year. If it does that, it will provide uh, about 5 to $6 billion more for its tax base than it has now. That helps to make up the shortfall that our supplemental will cover for the meantime. But it also then provides the employment for millions of its citizens to work within Ukraine. Now, that is a path to victory where we help Ukraine by providing assistance to uh, have its energy grid strengthened, air defense over its employment centers, and the export routes it needs so that it is able to fight this fight over the long term and to hold Russia off thereafter. 
The military assistance in the supplemental is about $45 billion. That goes to acquire American equipment that Ukraine will then use to pay for American service people to support Ukraine um, and to pay other countries to acquire American equipment after they provide equipment to Ukraine. The direct budget support that we provide to Ukraine enables Ukraine to put all of its tax dollars to support the war. Ukraine pays for about 60% of the costs of this war right now. The direct budget support pays for hundreds of thousands of educators, first responders, firefighters, um, and healthcare professionals to work within Ukraine. That's what the supplemental does. Who wins if we don't do this? President Putin says, if we walk away, Ukraine falls in a week. As you both mentioned in your opening statements, President Putin has hosted Hamas recently in Moscow, the president of the DPRK, and he has visited China. That's the coalition that is against us. That's who wins if we walk away. The next question is who's with us? We have more than 40 countries. They provide much more assistance to Ukraine than we do. It's about 91 billion to our 70 billion so far. They've hosted four and a half million Ukrainian refugees at a cost of around 18 billion. They are proposing another $50 billion in assistance just from the European Union. That's who's with us. That's our foundation for global reach. And that's who we have to stand with as we go forward. Uh, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, I've always been taught if you leave when a job's half done, you're going to have to go back and do it again. Right now, Ukrainians are willing to do this job because it's in their territory. If we abandon them, then somebody else is going to have to do this job later, and it's likely to be us. So I'd rather confront Russia and its destabilizing attitudes right here, right now, and we can finish the job with the supplemental that we've proposed um, for your consideration. So thank you, and I look forward to the questions. Thank you for your testimony. Secretary Pipe. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Resch, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to discuss the importance of continuing the United States' support to Ukraine. For over a year, Vladimir Putin has tried to break the will of the Ukrainian people through attacks on energy infrastructure, seeking to achieve through missile and Iranian drone strikes on civilian targets, what Russia's troops have failed to achieve on the battlefield. In response, working closely with our G7 partners, the private sector, and humanitarian groups, we have worked to help Ukraine keep the lights on and houses warm, ensuring that Putin's effort to weaponize the winter ends in failure. For Ukraine, this coming winter, promises to be even more challenging than the last. Ukraine's generation capacity has degraded about 50% since the start of the war. Ukrainian energy workers have labored day and night, often under fire, to repair, restore, and harden grid and generation facilities, often by cannibalizing parts from elsewhere. But most spare parts by now have been consumed, and Russia has recently resumed its bombardment of power plants and refineries including just this morning in eastern Ukraine. During the November 22 NATO ministerial in Bucharest, Secretary of State Blinken launched a new coordination group of G7 plus states to mobilize and coordinate broad support for the restoration of Ukraine's power grid. Since then, my team in the Bureau of Energy Resources has convened more than 40 meetings of this group at various levels to include three chaired by Secretary Blinken. We mobilized resources to repair the damage Putin had inflicted. 
identified partners who had equipment that could be repurposed and reached out to manufacturers and governments about needs identified by Ukraine. Since February of 2022, thanks to congressional action on prior supplementals, the United States has mobilized $520 million in energy sector funding. Led by colleagues at USAID and the Department of Energy, the United States has delivered thousands of tons of critical energy sector equipment, some of which was installed and operating within hours of delivery. But our G7 Plus partners have done even more, providing hundreds of millions of dollars in energy-related assistance, including grid repair equipment, power generators, and support for heating points. The European Commission and its partners managed a complex logistics chain and successfully delivered over 7,000 tons of equipment from 35 countries. We cannot let up now. The World Bank has estimated that after last winter, Ukraine needed at least $411 billion to rebuild its infrastructure. That was eight months ago. Every day that number grows. Electricity grid damage alone amounted to 10 billion in 2022. Ukraine's economic future depends on investment by the private sector and energy is key to unlocking that industrial recovery. The recent appointment of Secretary Pritzker as the President's Special Representative for Ukraine's economic recovery will intensify our efforts in this direction. American energy companies like Halliburton, GE, and EQT have been active partners in this effort, providing vital equipment to Ukraine and actively explore, exploring future commercial opportunities. We're working together to build a better future for and with Ukraine, modern, cleaner, and with a more decentralized power sector that is fully integrated with Europe, even serving as a power exporter to the rest of the European Union. But another front of Putin's war against Ukraine has been his manipulation and cutoffs of energy supplies to Europe. That effort too has failed, thanks significantly to the European Commission's rapid response through its Repower EU package and US-EU cooperation through the Energy Security Task Force and our Energy Council. After the full-scale invasion, US LNG producers stepped up to surge supplies to Europe as our allies turned away from Russia as an energy source. Since 2022, US exporters have supplied the EU with approximately 90 million tons of LNG, three times as much as the next largest supplier. Last year, 70% of US LNG exports went to Europe. Europe's shift away from Russian energy has happened much faster than predicted and marks a permanent shift in the international energy map. The brutal invasion of Ukraine has laid bare that Russia will never again be viewed as a reliable supplier of energy. This shift will result in real long-term losses for Russia in terms of both its global energy influence and future energy revenues. This has huge implications for a country that has historically relied on oil and gas revenues for 45% of its federal budget. And on the sanctions front, we continue working to degrade Russia's status as a leading energy supplier by targeting entities involved with the expansion of Russia's future production. In sum, the energy pillar of our Ukraine-Russia strategy is working and Congress's continued support is vital to US interests. Putin is targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure because he sees it as central to his war aims. The energy sector funding that is included in the National Security Supplemental is therefore essential to Ukraine's success on the battlefield. I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to your questions. Thank you for your testimony. I appreciate it.
Assistant Administrator McGee. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to speak to you today about our ongoing efforts in Ukraine. As you stated, we are at a critical moment with our partners fighting for a war for survival and our adversaries seeking to exhaust our will to support Ukraine's vital needs. Since Putin began his full-scale war, the people of Ukraine have demonstrated unforgettable courage and resilience in the face of a brutal, unjustified onslaught. The Kremlin's invaders threatened the people of Ukraine with unconscionable abuses and atrocities, including documented evidence of war crimes such as conflict-related sexual violence, including gender-based violence against children, women, and men, human trafficking, and other abuse. Russia's forces have ripped Ukrainian children from their homes. This is an orchestrated and systematic effort to forcibly transfer children to occupied uh, parts of Ukraine or to Russia itself, where they are subjected to pro-Russia indoctrination and, in many cases, military training. Ukraine has outperformed all expectations on the battlefield. We understand there is concern for how long the war may take. And I want to reinforce that our assistance to Ukraine has strengthened Ukraine's ability to withstand Russia's aggression and has strengthened the United States' partnerships with Ukraine and the other European democracies under threat from the Kremlin. USAID is providing humanitarian and early economic recovery assistance. Combined with direct budget support, we are supporting Ukraine's recovery from the shock of the full-scale invasion and helping Ukraine return to financial independence. In response to the immediate crisis, USAID has provided nearly $2 billion in humanitarian assistance to Ukraine since February of 2022. The generosity of the American people has supplied emergency health care, agriculture, and energy support to U Ukraine's most vulnerable populations. And thanks to the, the congressional appropriations, USAID dispersed reliable, sustained, direct budget support to the Ukrainian government, along with unprecedented levels of oversight. This enabled first responders, healthcare workers, teachers, and others to continue their vital work and sustain Ukraine's economy and institutions while they defend their country's freedom and sovereignty. To respond to Russia's weaponization of hunger, USAID launched the Agriculture Resilience Initiative to keep farmers afloat. USAID also works very closely with the private sector to improve Ukraine's energy security and transform Ukraine's energy sector into a modern engine of growth. Side-by-side side with our agriculture and energy efforts is USAID's support to small and medium enterprises, helping Ukraine increase jobs and generate revenue. Without continued funding for this economic development, embattled Ukraine will remain dependent on donor support. At this time, there is no funding left for direct budget support. Without further appropriations, the government of Ukraine would need to use emergency measures such as printing money, or not paying critical salaries, which could lead to hyperinflation and severely damage the war effort. USAID has also exhausted all of its supplemental humanitarian assistance funds. Additional funding is critical in the face of what remains an enormous need. If Congress does not approve supplemental funding, our partner organizations in Ukraine would have to either reduce the number of people getting this humanitarian assistance by up to 75% or suspend our humanitarian programs entirely. While our urgent uh, priority is to respond to the immediate humanitarian needs of the people of Ukraine, USAID also looks to the future, to building resilient infrastructure and institutions that will support Ukraine's path towards European Union integration. For decades, USAID has buttressed Ukraine's progress towards transparent, 
inclusive, and accountable governance. The United States continues to help Ukraine carry out judicial reform, institutionalize transparent financial systems, and respond to the people of Ukraine's zero tolerance for corruption. None of what we have achieved together would have been possible without the generosity of Congress and the American people. Through your bipartisan support, we have been able to deliver consistent, reliable, life-saving assistance to people in need and leverage and mobilize the support of our partners and allies to do the same. We now face a critical crossroads. It is vital that we continue to do everything in our power to avoid the disastrous consequences of unchecked aggression by the Kremlin. The besieged people of Ukraine are fighting for their country's survival as a sovereign democratic state. They're also fighting for basic needs, such as food, water, medicine, electricity. Putin must not succeed. We must continue to support the people of Ukraine in their fight to thrive as a free, secure, independent country, a democracy rooted in the rule of law, and a place where all have dignity, human rights, and the opportunity to reach their full potential. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Again, let me thank all three of you for your comments. We'll start a five-minute round. Uh, and I want to start by just saying what I said in my opening statement. I strongly support the president's supplemental request for Ukraine. I think we should have passed it yesterday and certainly not wait uh, in getting it passed. And I think your testimonies here point out the urgency of those dollars for Ukraine to be able to have the military assistance it needs to survive the winter and to plan for the spring and be prepared for the spring. And then I think the testimony uh, from Administrator McGee points out the desperate need to have civilian order in the country if they don't have the budgetary supports necessary to maintain basic services, the ability for Ukraine to defend itself becomes more challenging because of the local circumstances. So I recognize that. But let me just point out, as you have, that Europe and the coalition partners are contributing more than America's contributing in total dollars. They are taking on the burdens of the displaced individuals. We don't have that, that issue. They're doing more on the energy sector than we're doing. So, uh, so tell me the challenges if the supplemental is delayed. We were told uh, on October 1 or September 30 when we didn't include the aid for Ukraine that it sent a terrible message uh, to the international community. I know many of us, after unable to get the aid included in that, made personal phone calls to our allies and to the Ukrainians to let them know they were not forgotten, that we intended to bring this up at the earliest possible date. We're now looking at November 17th and it's becoming less and less likely we'll complete the supplemental by that date. Uh, tell us how this impacts Ukraine and the international support for Ukraine, the further delays in the United States Congress in passing the supplemental, and how that is being played by Mr. Putin in Russia. Secretary O'Brien. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think a couple of elements are critical. So three weeks ago, I was with Secretary Pritzker and spending several hours with President Zelensky. The first thing he noted was his people need to know that we continue to stand by them. They know this winter will be difficult, as, as Ambassador Pyatt just mentioned, but if they know that we remain with them, 
He feels they will come through strong and willing to fight. Then our allies need to know that we are with them. The European Union is currently considering a proposal for 50 billion euros, $60 billion, over the next four years of support for, for Ukraine. If we fail to provide the assistance, the, um, that will call into question then for them whether they, their efforts will be enough um, and whether they should go forward. And for our ability to help, as Administrator McKee has indicated, we, we have already spent the money that has been appropriated. Secretary Austin has spoken about the need to get additional funding for the military assistance that is needed, and we're brought back to President Putin's prediction that this may all end in a week if we walk away. So that's what's at stake on the supplemental. Administrator McGee, you've mentioned USAID's role here. I was impressed by uh, President Zelensky's commitment to try to root out corruption even during a war. Can you tell us how important the supplemental appropriation is to further President Zelensky's campaign to deal with corruption in this country? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your question. We have uh, witnessed not only the resilience and courage as they've uh, fought against uh, the Kremlin forces, but they have not skipped a beat in advancing the reform agenda. Uh, the EU report just came out uh, this morning, um, and both Ukraine and Moldova and a variety of other countries um, uh, received uh, support for continuing and opening chapters of recession talks. That's because our support to uh, strengthening and deepening the institutions fighting corruption in Ukraine have the received the top priority from the president. They had to uh, pass um, and meet conditionality that we put on our direct budget support and did so without blinking. So while they're fighting a war and fighting for their survival, they are 100% dedicated to uh, ensuring that the uh, political economy model that they inherited during the Soviet Union is dismantled, which reflects the will of the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian people want to see accountability and consequences, and the government of Ukraine has stepped up with our support to do so. And Secretary Pyatt, I just want to... Uh, your testimony was encouraging on the LNG imports particularly. Do you see those trends increasing? Uh, because it's, I think, encouraging to see that we that policy that many of us have been urging looks like it's taking hold mr chairman i think you're exactly right and and one of the real success stories amid the tragedy of this war is that europe has turned decisively away from its dependence up until 2022 on russian gas in particular i see that as a permanent change in the landscape it's reflected in the billions of dollars that european countries have invested in regasification facilities. It's reflected in the contracts that are being signed with American LNG producers. And it's also reflected in Europe's renewed and doubled commitment to accelerating the pace of its energy transition. So ironically, Putin's weaponization of his energy resource has induced Europe to break its vulnerability there. And I think that is a permanent change in the landscape that is also a positive benefit for American energy producers and our leadership on the energy transition. Well, I have additional questions in regards to Russia and Iran, but I have a feeling that my colleagues might be asking some questions in that regard. <laughs> Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm tempted, but uh, instead I'm going to focus on a, a narrow lane here, but a really important lane. 
uh, with you, Mr. Pyatt, and that is an issue that uh, is incredibly important, but on which most of uh, our, our Congress is uh, not informed, and I'm going to hope you can uh, help us uh, get through that. And uh, I want to talk about uh, the nuclear reactors we have in the United States, which of which are, what, 95, give or take uh, a few. Um, would you tell the committee, please, where does the fuel come from to uh, operate these uh, nuclear facilities? So, ranking member, about 20% of the fuel that operates our nuclear fleet here in the United States still comes from Russia. Uh, the president has included in his latest supplemental a request for about $2.2 billion to help rebuild the nuclear enrichment capacity that we need here in the United States to end that dependency. And the administration has also stated its support for a ban on the import of Russian, uh, Russian nuclear fuel. I was hoping that would be your answer, uh, I'm not only on this committee, but also intelligence and energy. And this issue comes to a confluence in all three of those uh, committees. Uh, Senators uh, Barrasso and Manchin and I introduced the Nuclear Fuel Security Act. Are you familiar with that? I am, Ranking Member. Okay. Uh, I think that will go a long way to doing something here. Uh, we're also uh, working on the ban, as you indicated. Uh, obviously, we can't have that ban, but it's stunning to me that we're sending money to Russia uh, to buy nuclear fuel when we've got bans in uh, all kinds of other places. Uh, but we have to because of the dependence we have there. Uh, th this is part of the problem we've got with the supply chain around the world, and that is we have not paid attention to it. And we really need to, particularly in this very, very critical area. Um, in any event, uh, what, what are your thoughts on, we've got to get the, uh, this industry up and going. Obviously, it's moved offshore. We need to get it going. Give me your thoughts on that. How, how quickly can we do it? How much is it going to cost? What can we as the government do to, uh, to move this along? Could you uh, talk about that, please? Thank you, Ranking Member. I, I could talk all day about this. I'll try not to. Please don't. Um, let me first note um, the importance of Ukraine, a country that operates one of the largest nuclear fleets in all of Europe one of the few countries in Europe that has the industrial supply chain to contribute to a future non-Russian um, nuclear industry. When I was ambassador in Kiev, I worked directly with President Poroshenko and, in, and with Westinghouse to um, enable the Ukrainians to refuel their reactors with non-Russian fuel assemblies. It was incredibly controversial. I remember one time uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov called Secretary Kerry in the middle of my night to complain that we were going to cause another Chernobyl by putting Westinghouse fuel into these wonderful Russian reactors. That, of course, was a lie. Um, and since then, Ukraine has steadily incorporated Westinghouse fuel assemblies into its nuclear fleet. As we look to the future across Central and Eastern Europe, um, civil nuclear power is going to be a key part of those countries' non-Russian energy mix. And I would also flag, uh, ranking member, the critically important role of the work that's being done here in the United States on a next generation of nuclear reactors, small modular reactors. I've been following closely the, the challenges in your home state and, and the work with New Scale, uh, and I hope very much that we can find a way forward in that regard as well, because we have to, uh, we have to maintain American leadership in this area. And Ukraine is going to be one of our principal partners because it has the workforce, because it has the industrial capacity, because it has the nuclear knowledge in helping to bring clean nuclear power to countries in Europe like Poland that have made that choice 
but do not currently have the human capital or industrial base to fulfill that requirement. Well, thank you. And I, I, I hope we can all join together to uh, move this important issue forward, because this is something we can and should lead on. Uh, you made reference to the uh, SMR and the new scale problem. I, uh, that's obviously been very disappointing to us. But the SMR is going to change the world. And uh, obviously, uh, Russia, China, and uh, uh, France, for that matter, have all jumped on board on this and uh, are looking at ways to, to uh, exploit their uh, standing on the issue. Uh, we shouldn't let that happen. We should be the leaders on this, and, and I hope we will be. You'll be happy to hear we've had a number of discussions as to how we can do that at the Idaho National Lab, which is, of course, the, the uh, flagship uh, laboratory in the United States on nuclear energy. And I promise you we're going to continue to do that. Uh, thank you for your attention to this issue. It's an absolutely critical issue. It, it's incredibly ironic to me that we're sending money uh, to Russia to purchase fuel uh, when uh, we've got all these other things going on and they're using it to, to fight against us in Ukraine. So we need to stop it, and the sooner we do it, the better. Thank you for your work. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, uh, and thank you for continuing to show strong bipartisan support for Ukraine. Um, I agree uh, with the points just raised by the Ranking Member about the urgency of our um, making our nuclear uh, fuel system more independent of Russia and the future of SMRs being critical uh, for a zero carbon American uh, developed energy source for the future. Thank you to our witnesses. Um, the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine has been a profound strategic failure for Putin. NATO, instead of being divided or weakened, is expanded and strengthened. Uh, as you've testified, there is a global coalition of 50 countries providing more than $90 billion in direct support, uh, both humanitarian, uh, direct budget support, military for Ukraine, although we are the single largest donor, the, the contributions to the fight for freedom on the front lines in Ukraine uh, is genuinely global. Um, and as you laid out, uh, Secretary O'Brien, uh, Russia's coalition includes folks like Iran and North Korea, while ours is literally the entire free world. But we are at risk of failing of handing Putin a victory um, right when he is on the verge of defeat if we do not take up and pass the president's full supplemental. Administrator McKee, some of my colleagues have said to me privately that they are enthusiastic about continuing to send military equipment and hardware to Ukraine, but not direct budget support. Um, you testified about the importance of direct budget support. Could you help us just briefly understand three things? Um, what are the sorts of services um, that are being provided through our direct budget support? As the um, Secretary Pyatt uh, had testified, there continues to be a brutal bombardment of the electric grid. What would happen if direct budget support were to end to Ukraine's ability to respond to the daily bombardments of their electric grid, for example? Um, second, you said that the accountability and oversight measures that are needed are in place and are working ro robustly, if you just briefly speak to that. And then most importantly, how much time do we have? If we kick this can down the road a month or two or three through a continuing resolution and we fail to take up in advance um, the full supplemental for budget support and humanitarian, how much time do we have before that begins to really have bite for the people of Ukraine? Thank you, Senator, for your question. On the first point, um, as we've noted, the types of services, right now Ukraine is able to spend 
all of their national budget in the fight. They are paying their soldiers' salaries. They are, you know, dedicated to uh, defeating Putin on the front lines. That means they don't have any resources to take care of their people and govern, which is as vital to keep up the unity of purpose and the resilience that we've seen from the Ukrainian people because they're all in, both on the civilian and the military side. And so the types of services that would be suspended are first responders who rush into the building and save uh, lives, medical care to make sure that inoculations stay up so that the Ukrainian population stays healthy, particularly children, routine immunizations. We heard reports of polio outbreaks and some other concerns during the early days of the mass uh, emigration of folks fleeing the conflict. We also are um, supporting teachers and continuing education so that they don't lose a generation as a result of Putin's attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure so that the kids can stay in school and that and those and families am I are there. that the direct budget support requested gradually goes down yes. over the next year as the economy becomes more vibrant and we assess Ukraine is able to generate more revenue? Correct. Um, the direct budget support and their fiscal Stability is also vital for the IMF program and other donors stepping in. Our leadership in this space, and yes, we were first, um, unlocked the other support that we've seen mobilized from the EU, other donors, as well as boosting the confidence in the multilaterals to be able to contribute to Ukraine's economic stability, which is as vital as winning the war. If their economy collapses, Putin will have won. On your point of accountability, uh, uh, absolutely, there has been no finding of any misuse or misdirection and at multiple tiers and multiple reviews and stock checking, not just by the three IGs in terms of end use checks and making sure that, that we can follow the resources. Um, we have third party monitoring um, to ensure that the systems by which those are delivered, both reimbursed and validating, are also ironclad and unassailable. And in terms of timing, as I said, the last we have no more direct budget support. The last tranche was dispersed at the end of the fiscal year. The, this jeopardizes, particularly over the coming months, Ukraine's ability to maintain its economic stability while it continues to fight the war. It's urgent. Thank you for the clarity of that answer. And let me just close by making an observation the chairman made, uh, which is the fight going on in Israel and the fight going on in Ukraine are not distinct. Uh, Putin welcomed the head of Hamas. Wagner is offering to provide air defense possibly to Hezbollah. Um, there is a, a linkage between these coalitions that supports terrorism in the Middle East and a brutal and ongoing invasion and occupation of eastern Ukraine. For us to pick one piece of this supplemental and not the full supplemental, not to provide direct budget support, not to provide humanitarian support to Ukraine, not to provide support to Israel, and to continue to push humanitarian support for dozens of countries would be a grave mistake. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Paul. I think it's easy to look around the world and find places where the U.S. taxpayer can be asked to send money to fix the world's problems, but there is an important question we might want to ask before we start sending $100 billion more. Where are you going to get it? You know, we don't have any money. Every bit of our tax revenue goes to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and food stamps. Those four programs consume all of our tax revenue. Everything else is borrowed. In fact, the entire discretionary budget right now is being borrowed. We borrowed a trillion dollars in the last three months. Interest rates are, have doubled. Interest payments have doubled. 
So you can have all this goodwill and try to fix the world's problems, but you're ignoring the rot and ruin you're creating in your own country. Mr. O'Brien, in Russia's weakened state, it's tempting to forget that they are a nuclear power. But I think our foreign policy decisions need to take into account the dangers of war escalating in Ukraine. As Harvard's Graham Allison points out, if Putin is forced to choose between humiliating defeat on the one hand and escalating the level of destruction, there's every reason to believe he chooses the latter. There's a great deal of evidence that the war in Ukraine has come to a stalemate. Even Ukraine's Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Services has admitted as much. In Graham Allison's view, the Ukraine war has escalated far enough to see how bad things would become if we end up in a world where nuclear weapons are used. Allison believes that where we are now, both for Putin's Russia and for the Biden-led U.S. and the Western alliance, it's time to search for an off-ramp for all the parties. What is being done at the State Department to search for an off-ramp? Thank you, Senator. Uh, a few points. I mean, I can speak to the foreign policy implications. My belief is if we don't stand with Ukraine now, we'll be spending much more on defense in the future. Um, and much of this supplemental goes to reinvest in the United States. So far from rot and ruin, we're actually shoring up the foundations in our energy sector as Assistant Secretary Pyatt. So your argument is that war and funding war around the world is good for our armaments industry? Yeah. I'm saying this supplemental is good for our economy. For the, for the armaments industry. I, I, so it, really, it's a justification of war. To me, that's sort of reprehensible, the idea that, and this is coming from my side as well, oh, glory be, the war is really not that bad. Broken windows are not that bad because we pay people to fix them. Broken countries are not so bad because, hey, look, the armaments industry is going to get billions of dollars out of this. Yeah. I think that's a terrible argument. I wish y'all would say maybe there's a, you know, go back to your freedom argument or something. But the idea that you're going to enrich the armaments manufacturers, I think, is reprehensible. Well, Senator, I'm not making the argument war is good. I'm making the argument in this case war is necessary. And that we can make a little profit on the side. It's not so bad since the armaments guys will make a lot of profit on this, right? No, Senator, I think you're proposing a kind of false choice that I either have to say that or say nothing. What I'm saying is that our economy rests on a foundation of innovation, and in this supplemental, we're investing in our energy sector, as but you just heard. Since the heard money's borrowed, we're borrowing the money. We don't have it. We don't have a pot of money. So what you're arguing is, in essence, that we borrow the money from China, we send it to Ukraine, Ukraine sends it back to buy arms from us, and that's a win-win. How do we win when we're borrowing money to pay people? See, this is this sort of false sort of argument that, oh, well, look, we'll create five jobs for every dollar we spend, but we're borrowing the money. It doesn't make any sense. It's coming from somewhere where it would be in a productive use to where it's into the uh, use of uh, basically fomenting a war and continuing a war. No, that's not the choice in front of us, Senator. And I'm sorry that you feel you know, that that's the way you want to frame it. The choice in front of us is do we invest in the capacities that allow this war to be won? Those include capacities in energy, in defense, in IT. In, they the, include in, the, in the original question, let's get away from funding the armaments people. Uh, you know, I'm not for that. But the original question is, what are you doing to develop an off-ramp? You know, when I listen to your presentations, it sounds like the Department of War. I don't hear the Department of Diplomacy in front of me. Where are the diplomats? Is anybody talking about negotiation? Yeah. Do, you do you really believe 
that Russia, uh, that Ukraine's going to push Russia out of, uh, out of Ukraine. They're going to push them out of Crimea, push them out of the east, and that Zelensky's position, we will not negotiate till they're gone from Ukraine, is viable, and that there's not going to have to be some negotiation beforehand. beforehand. All wars. If you believe that, though, the meat grinder continues, and Ukraine will be an utter destruction, and tens of thousands of more people will die if there is no negotiation. You would think that as a superpower, we would be involved somewhat with encouraging negotiation, but I've heard nothing from you and nothing from anyone in your administration, frankly, that talks about negotiating. So, well, Senator, then I hope you would, you know, sit down and talk with me about what we're doing in this regard. Here, I'll give you a little sense of it. All wars end with a negotiation. We've made clear we'll do that with Ukraine, not over Ukraine's head. It takes two parties to negotiate the end of a war. President Putin is not serious about negotiating the end of the war. He has said he wants to wait and see what happens in November 24. So we're preparing for that eventuality so we can have a negotiation that will actually stick as opposed to the track record of broken agreements that President Putin has made with a whole range of his neighbors up until now. So that's successful there, diplomacy, there, not mere diplomacy. There are actually some who say we're back to about where we started as far as negotiating and tens of thousands of people have died on both sides and we haven't been successful but I still hear only war, and I don't hear diplomacy. No, but I think what we're looking at is successful diplomacy. I just spent last weekend with 66 countries talking about the basis of a successful peace in, in Ukraine. Russia didn't show up. That, again, is the problem. You don't have a willing partner on the other side. So simply saying that there must be talks is you're asking for a monologue, not, not, a, not diplomacy. Senator Merkley. Secretary O'Brien. No, Senator. Senator Merkley. Secretary O'Brien, am I correct that Russia is spending about 25 percent of its um, uh, funds on the, on the war and the United States is, is spending about uh, one and a half percent? I think Russia is spending more. I think it's 30 percent of the public budget and they have a secret budget that's even more. Yes. Th thank you. In your testimony, you start out by talking about how Putin is testing the world's resolve to defend most basic principles, that sovereign nations cannot have their borders changed unilaterally that dictators cannot punish countries for seeking closer ties with the, the U.S., and that the United States will stand up when the freedom of our friends and allies is threatened. I certainly agree with all those. I have a series of questions. I hope you can give me a short answer so I can get through them if possible. Do you agree that failure to fund Ukraine will do deep damage to the Atlantic Alliance? Yes. Do you agree that failure to fund Ukraine will also put some cracks into NATO? Yes. Do you believe that if the U.S. appeases Putin by throwing support for Ukraine overboard, that somehow uh, Putin will never do aggression elsewhere? President Putin has made clear that once he gets what he wants in Ukraine, he will start looking at the Baltics, he will start looking at Poland and other key allies. Thank you. And if the U.S. appeases Putin by throwing Ukraine aid overboard, will it enhance China's appetite for to use military force on Taiwan? China will see us as weaker. Will it encourage other dictators around the world to take additional land? Yes. Now, I'm really struck by the parallel to uh, uh, the uh, uh, journey of, of Chamberlain to, to Munich, 
uh, to say, okay, Hitler, you can, you can take a third of Czechoslovakia, and then he declared peace in our time under the assumption that somehow this would not whet Hitler's appetite. Did Chamberlain's strategy work? No. Will the strategy now of us bailing on Ukraine to appease Putin work? No, it'll invite more aggression. I think this is one of the most important decisions we've faced in the time I've been in the Senate, probably the most important decision. I'm astounded that colleagues who supported corrupt uh, government in Afghanistan and an invasion of Iraq now want to bail on the freedom-loving, democracy-defending people of Ukraine who are dying uh, with, the, with the cause. And um, I, I must say, I think it will be one of the biggest foreign policy mistakes we could make in generations if we bail on Ukraine. Do you agree with that? Yes, Senator. If there is a emergency supplemental in which the funding for Ukraine has been thrown overboard, should we pass it? We've asked for this united supplemental because it is one fight globally. So we should reject it. Yes, I think the Senate should pass the full supplemental. Will President Biden veto a bill in which the funding for Ukraine is thrown overboard? That's ultimately the president's decision, but he's asked for the supplemental he believes should be passed. Will you encourage the president to veto a bill in which the funding for Ukraine has been thrown overboard? I'd encourage the president to make whatever statements needed to get the full supplemental that we need. My concern is we're going to see a repetition of what we saw earlier when we were facing a continuing resolution in which you know, the Senate procedures are very, very slow. It takes a week to get a bill to the floor. It takes a week to get the, the amendment that has the basic proposal in place. And it takes only one hour in the House for a proposal to be put up and voted on. I'm afraid they're going to send us a continuing resolution that throws the funding for Ukraine overboard. Should we reject such a strategy from the House of Representatives? Yes, Senator. Thank you. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, thank you to our uh, panelists here today to talk about uh, Ukraine. As we discuss Ukraine and we think down the road about rebuilding Ukraine, I think there's an important point to make, which this should not be done solely on the backs of American taxpayers or European taxpayers. Uh, Russia began its full-scale war against Ukraine, um, and it uh, there's public reports that more than $300 billion in Russian sovereign assets have been frozen globally, and estimates are the cost to rebuild Ukraine will be about $400 billion. Now, there's a phrase, I'm sure you've all heard it before, called you break it, you buy it. And uh, one of the things I'd like to highlight here is uh, Ranking Member Risch's Repo Act that would uh, require uh, this... Uh, Russia to basically pay for the damage they've done. Its common sense legislation has bipartisan, bicameral support, gives the president the legal authority to confiscate Russian sovereign assets that have been frozen in the U.S. and transfer them to assist Ukraine's reconstruction efforts. Uh, the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee marked up its version of the bill yesterday, and uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, I would encourage us to work on this as well to be able to get this bill done. I think it's going to be important. Assistant Secretary O'Brien, do you agree that uh, Russia has legal and moral responsibility to compensate Ukraine for the damage its illegal invasion has done to the country? Oh, yes, Senator. 
you think Russia will ever compensate Ukraine for its aggression or pay for Ukraine's reconstruction? So the, the president and his G7 colleagues and the secretary and his just today reaffirmed that Russia must pay and that Russia's immobilized funds, which as you say are about $300 billion, will not be returned to Russia until it does pay. Mm -hmm. So we have leverage in this discussion. Given that Putin is unlikely then to pay for the damage he's done, will um, uh, and will continue to use Russia's veto power in the UN to block traditional mechanisms to, for compensation. Do you agree that the US and our allies and partners should consider all options to ensure Russia pays rather than the taxpayers in this situation? Yes, Senator. Great. So um, just again, want to encourage us to be able to continue to take up this Repo Act. I think it's an important piece of legislation. Uh, also, uh, Assistant Secretary O'Brien, a couple of weeks ago in our Black Sea subcommittee, subcommittee hearing, we discussed the dangers of the People's Republic of China involvement in Ukraine reconstruction. Obviously, this would go against our interests and those of our allies and partners. The PRC would use its involvement to collect intelligence on Ukraine and foreign-supplied military capabilities, as well as the intellectual property they steal from all around the world already. They would do that in Ukraine. Um, and its track record of spreading corruption and undermining the rule of law will only serve to undermine Ukraine's efforts to uh, be able to fight corruption in their own country. Uh, given the reconstruction efforts will cost at least $400 billion, there's going to be a temptation for the Ukrainians to take money from Beijing. And, you know, we've already seen it. There were reports last month that Ukraine hasn't excluded the PRC telecom suppliers from supplying equipment to rebuild damaged infrastructure. Our country's deputy digital minister, um, the, or the country, Ukraine's de country's de uh, deputy digital minister said that the U.S. and our allies had not provided any official proof of security risks associated with the PRC of uh, vendors. And as a result, Ukraine would have to give the contracts to the lowest bidder, which could be Huawei or ZTE. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, you said that uh, you felt confident we would have the Ukraine firmly in our camp where we were comfortable um, and ultimately, it's their choice, but that's why we need to stay in the game and from a financial standpoint. It may be uh, Ukrainians' choice whether they allow the PRC to be part of the reconstruction effort, but it's uh, our choice with regard to U.S. assistance benefiting Beijing. Do you think we should condition U.S. aid to prevent U.S. tax dollars from supporting PRC-owned or controlled entities from providing the reconstruction? Uh, Senator, we do. That's why it's so important to have the supplemental so that we remain in the game and can set the conditions that make it impossible for opaque, illegitimate contractors like the Chinese to enter. And I know my colleagues can speak at some length about how in energy, telecoms, and other sectors, we do exactly that. But if we're not there, then we can't, we can't do, uh, provide the guarantees you want. Great. And I just want to go back to something that uh, Senator Merkley was talking about earlier as well with regard to uh, Putin's uh, next steps if he's successful in Ukraine, you made reference to him talking about the Baltics. Has he made overt statements that uh, the Baltics were renegade states, that uh, he sees them as part of the greater Russia, that sort of thing? Yes, he has. Great. Thank you very much. Senator Booker. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. The, uh, the existential nature of where we are right now, Mr. O'Brien, is... Uh, something that can't be understated if we do not rise to meet this moment in the United States of America. From China to Iran, people are watching the resolve of this nation to protect uh, uh, a democratic ally. Uh, failure in this moment could have uh, catastrophic costs 
not only to Russia's continued territorial uh, ambitions, which they've made clear and laid plain, uh, but also China uh, and Iran as well. I want to uh, thank the, uh, the Biden administration for putting Penny Pritzker uh, in charge of really focusing on reconstruction. And I think we, we don't have, we have a little bit of historical amnesia about how critical that is to preserving democracy. Years before the end of World War II, years before, we began work on the Marshall Plan, and we saw after World War II that countries that have been devastated in war are very susceptible to the winds of extremism, whether it's fascism or communism, that undermine the ability uh, for governments to sustain themselves. And I think we are at that moment right now. We're discussing reconstruction at this point is so critical because investments made now are not only important for the war effort, but sustaining the Ukrainian people going forward. And I wonder, uh, there, there seems to be a lack of understanding that the supplemental resources that are being debated in Congress right now are for critical investments, not just for winning the war effort, but in helping for the critical long-term reconstruction. And I was wondering, Mr. O'Brien, if you could speak to the urgency, not just to supply, supplying their military with resources, but the urgency right now, uh, both in the immediacy and in the long term, why this supplemental is critical investments that will pay dividends for the security and the strength and the victory that we're looking for in Ukraine. Um, thank you, Senator. I will try this, and I know each of my colleagues have, have a piece of this as well. Um, I think that's very well said. And what we see in the integrated supplemental request is an effort to address each part of what's needed for Ukraine to thrive during the war and be prepared to succeed after the war. So right now, if we provide the air defense that's needed, the economic industries that drive Ukraine's economy can begin to work again. That's employment and hope for Ukrainians. It's tax dollars that go to make up the shortfall that we are currently meeting with our, our partners on the, the direct budget support. If we can then create the, the space for the energy supply to be reliable, then we have employment and Ukraine's economic activity working. That's what Ambassador Payet is working on. There are about $2.2 billion to go to both the energy supply and to the economic activity that's needed for Ukraine to begin to repair its, its um, access to the outside world. That's also important to us. When Russia invaded Ukraine, grain prices went up six times in many places around the world because Ukraine is an incredibly important part of the global grain trade. The work that AID does to help Ukrainian farmers get their products to market in the supplemental, the $100 million that is for demining will help farmers get their product to market. All of that directly benefits the markets in which our consumers are a part. So if we do all that, then Ukraine has, as I mentioned in my statement, if we can get them to about pre-war export levels, that's an extra $6 billion a year in tax revenue just from the exports as well as what the industries pay and what happens around the society. Now, Secretary Pritzker, and she should come and, and testify this herself, she's doing an outstanding job at building a strategy that lets us focus our efforts in key places so that Ukraine's economy will begin to work and contribute to the global economy even while this war is going on. 
All of that works together to make sure that Ukraine can succeed and has the leverage needed when we get to a negotiation, as Senator Paul wants. And, and in my seconds left, it is so frustrating to me to see that people do not understand essential to winning the war is investments in this space. And if you listen to the Ukrainian people and folks I've talked to, they are looking for resources to strengthen their democratic institutions, their energy sector, their nuclear sector, anti-corruption efforts that are going on right now that are critical uh, to winning this, governance reforms, European cooperation, integration, uh, modernizing and diversifying uh, key elements of their economy. Without this, um, uh, we cannot win, and to be penny wise and pound foolish really is to undermine ultimately the war effort and uh, the effort to win the peace. Yes or no, you agree? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Schatz. Thank you, Chair and Vice Chair, and uh, thank you all for being here. I want to start with the, the basic question for uh, Secretary O'Brien, um, and I don't want you to overdo it. I want you to really give me your your, your blunt assessment. What do you think the connections are between Russia and Hamas? We've seen that they had a delegation in Russia. We've seen uh, 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 an unwillingness to designate them as a, a terrorist organization. What else do we have in terms of a through line? I believe we're in a fight against global fascism, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have operational ties to the extent that we can prove them. So give me the, give me the, the, the real scoop on how closely they're aligned right now. Um, the, so I think there are probably details that are more suitable for another sure. venue. President Putin sees Hamas as a way to distract us and to weaken the coalition that we have built against him. So his unwillingness to, fo to condemn what Hamas did October 7th and his unwillingness to use any leverage he might have to get them to say, move out of Gaza City so that it's not the subject of the, the focus it is now, is a sign that he prefers to see us distracted by this fight and he prefers to see Hamas a, a sort of second front uh, against us. And that's the connection that's most troubling. If Putin is successful, do you think he then, I mean, we obviously understand he has additional territorial ambitions, but obviously, but, but my question is, if he's successful, does he deepen ties with some of these um, terrorist organizations because he's now got some uh, new capacity ha having um, having won the war. I don't want to contemplate this, but I think that that's what we're really talking about here. If we, if we don't provide funding, um, that could be it. We hope that we provide funding, uh, and we hope that if we don't, somehow the Ukrainians and the Europeans and everybody else pulls a rabbit out of a hat. But I think that we need to be clear-eyed about what it would mean to, for a second time, vote no on a supplemental, or do Israel only, or do a CR with no hope of a supplemental. I want to understand, what does Putin do next if he wins? He wants instability around his borders. So if Ukraine loses, he will promote instability in the Baltics and around Eastern Europe, across the Black Sea. He will also reach into Africa and the Middle East, where we see him already active. He'll try that anyway, but he'll be much more powerful if we walk away. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Pyatt, uh, uh, how are we managing the energy infrastructure question? Obviously, Putin is trying to um, 
weaponized civilian infrastructure against the people of Ukraine. How do we help? What, what can we be doing? So the most important thing we've done is mobilized our allies and partners around the world. Um, the United States has provided significant assistance. I was in Kyiv in December, the week that the first tranche of Department of Energy sourced hardware from the United States was delivered to Poland and then onward into Ukraine. There was a profound sense of relief, as if the cavalry had arrived. But since then, as I mentioned, we've built this G7 plus coalition involving our G7 allies and the regional neighbors and key institutions like the EBRD to mobilize assistance, to listen to the Ukrainians, to source this stuff. To give you an example, one of Putin's principal targets last year were these high-voltage auto transformers, which connect the national Ukrainian grid. His objective was to fracture the grid, to deny Ukraine the ability to move power around the country and keep houses warm. Um, we have worked with Japan. We have worked with Korea uh, to source the auto transformers and the equipment that Putin is destroying. We have a lot in the pipeline, but we face supply chain challenges. The other aspect of this, Senator, if, if I can for a minute on your uh, question to my colleague, Assistant Secretary O'Brien, I was ambassador in Ukraine when the occupation of Crimea happened. And I remember vividly at that moment working with many members of this committee. I remember the analysts stating confidently that that would keep Putin busy for a decade. Um, that was not the case. In fact, a few weeks later, I had a, a CODEL that I was hosting. I remember distinctly uh, Senator Barroso and Senator McCain were coming to Ukraine. We were going to go to Donetsk, to the, the capital of Donbass. Um, that CODEL, that trip was scrubbed at the last moment because Russian-supported forces had begun to flow into Donbass. I think we need to take Putin at his word. His objective is the dismemberment of Ukraine, and if he is successful in that effort, he will then move on to his next targets. So I fully agree with my, my colleague Jim, but also would, would underline the immediate tactical relevance of the support we provide in the energy sector. As I said, that equipment delivered last December, some of it was plugged into the grid in a matter of days. And so the, and we're, the ability to continue to do that kind of procurement is directly linked to the resources that are part of this emergency supplemental. So in other words, we need this money to get for Ukraine to get through this winter. Civilian, set aside the, 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 the defensive and offensive capabilities in order for people in Kyiv to not freeze, we need some resources so that we can backstop whatever mischief Putin may be doing to the grid. That is exactly right. And then on Ranking Member Risch's point about connecting the dots, I would point out that the greatest threat to the energy grid today are the Shahid drones, and, and which, which Russia is now beginning to industrialize the production of those. We can talk about that in a classified setting. But there is a direct Iran-Russia um, nexus in the attacks on Ukraine's energy system. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Schatz. Um, I am up next, and I would like to bring the conversation back to what I think um, we talk about a lot, but sometimes we, um, we forget the human cost of this war. Last year I met with a group of Ukrainian women soldiers, and one of the things they've said to me I have repeated um, multiple times since that meeting, and that is, give us the weapons to fight the Russians so that the United States doesn't have to. Well, 
I had a chance to meet with one of those young women again recently. This is Andriana. Some of you may have met with her when she was in um, Washington a couple of weeks ago. She was um, driving in a civilian car on the front lines of the war because they didn't have armored cars. Um, and she had a Russian anti-tank mine, and she was temporarily paralyzed. As you can see from the photos, she's spent some time in recovery, nine months. She had to relearn how to walk. But as she said to me when she came back to Congress, she's planning to go rejoin her unit um, because she's committed to this fight. And we had a, a really fun exchange about Ukraine's motto, which is freedom or death, and how she could identify with New Hampshire's state motto, which is live free or die. Well, Ukraine is fighting so that we don't have to, and people are dying to make sure that they can be a free country that is not occupied by Russia, and they are fighting for democracy in the United States and around the world. And the United States, um, I believe, needs to continue to support this effort because not only is it in Ukraine's and NATO's and Europe's interest, but it is in our own national security interest. And Senator Schatz, um, I think, was asking about the nexus between Russia and Hamas. But Secretary O'Brien, can you talk a little bit more about what that nexus is? How does the U.S. response to Putin's war in Ukraine serve the broader national security interest of not only defeating Russia, but of deterring Iran and beating back our other adversaries? Thank you, Senator. And there's no one more um, eloquent than a Ukrainian fighter uh, talking about her commitment to freeing her country. As I said in my opening statement, this is about the foundation of freedom and stability that the U.S. has spent 80 years building. And Ukraine has, after a few decades of finding its way as an independent country, unequivocally made the commitment that it wants to be a part of that foundation. So the rest of the world looks at us and, and asks, are we ready to take this opportunity and bring 35 million talented people into the space that will help us as we move forward over the next decades? If we say no to that, they will judge us as having turned our backs on the world and not caring about other places that also want to be a part of that foundation. So it will set us back decades and, and will, I think, just um, make hollow the commitment that thousands of Americans made starting in the 1940s if we miss this opportunity. Thank you. I certainly share that. Um, Secretary, Assistant Secretary Pyatt, last month I chaired a subcommittee hearing on the importance of the Black Sea region. Um, can you talk about how Russians' actions in the Black Sea specifically affect Europe's um, energy um, potential and what can happen as the result of um, the vision that would allow 
um, energy from Central Asia to come across through the Black Sea region and supply Southern Europe. First of all, Senator, thank you for your strong focus on the Black Sea region, because you're exactly right. This is one of the, <clears throat> the fulcrums of the energy map of Europe today. I think one thing that will be true whenever this war comes to an end, the center of gravity of Europe will shift to the south and the east. So the Black Sea becomes vitally important and the redrawing of the energy map around the Black Sea that's taking place. Romania's investment and work that Romania is doing with support from my bureau to develop its offshore wind industry in the Black Sea. The new pipeline infrastructure that I have been involved in supporting through multiple jobs, the Southern Gas Corridor, to bring gas from Central Asia to European consumers. Um, the investment that we made to support new pipelines linking, um, linking Greece to the countries of the Western Balkans to allow them to break their 100% dependency on Gazprom. So what's happening in this Black Sea region is of vital importance. Right now it's significantly impeded by, by Russia's occupation of Crimea and the military threat that Russia has presented to the Black Sea. An important aspect of that which directly impacts American companies is the pipeline which goes from Kazakhstan to bring um, crude oil produced by Chevron and ExxonMobil um, out into the Black Sea, uh, which is vulnerable to the conflict that Russia has brought to the region. So as I look at the, and in this global responsibility that I have today, um, you know, I have to think about the geopolitics of our energy interests around the globe. But the region that you focused on in the Black Sea is of absolutely critical importance. And we're fortunate there to have very strong allies. I've been to Bulgaria, Turkey, Romania three times in this role, precisely because of how important it is to shaping the energy geopolitics of Europe and the wider region as we look to the future. Thanks very much. I agree. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Shaheen. Thanks to all three of you for being here today and for your great work on behalf of the United States and our interest in supporting a independent and sovereign Ukraine. Um, listen, I, um, I don't understand the games that our Republican friends are playing with Ukraine aid. I think this is an existential moment. We are at the zero hour with respect to Ukraine's needs. Uh, I want to pass comprehensive bipartisan immigration reform as badly as anyone, but to hold Ukraine hostage to unlocking that very difficult knot is dangerous for us and the world. But um, uh, I'm there in good faith trying to listen to my Republican friends to try to get a path forward here. Um, but this is really one side of the equation, the support that Ukraine needs. And I hope that we find a path in the next two weeks to be able to get Ukraine the supplemental assistance it needs. The other side of this equation is what we can do to make it harder for Russia to be able to sustain this level of operation. Um, and so I wanted to ask maybe both you, Ambassador Pyatt and Ambassador O'Brien, um, about how Russia's long-term prospects look to be able to afford this war and what the United States can do. You know, here's a note. Uh, Russia started out spending about 4% of GDP on military endeavors. Uh, this budget for the upcoming year will have them spending 6% of GDP 
on their military. That puts them in the top five in the entire world in terms of the percentage of their economy dedicated to military spending. Note that number one on that list is Ukraine that is spending 33% of its GDP, 33% of its GDP on the military. Um, but the IEA projects that Russia's share of globally traded oil is gonna fall by 50% by 2030 and that their net income from gas sales is gonna fall from 75 billion to 30 billion. You're spending already 6% of your GDP and you have a potential catastrophic fall coming in oil and gas revenue. Um, that is one of the things, maybe the primary factor that may push Russia to the table to try to drive a conclusion to this conflict. Um, so what can we do as members of Congress and how can we support your efforts to continue to make it harder for Russia to finance this war? And, and, and how much of that is dependent on our allies in India and our adversaries in China making different decisions than they are today? I'll stop there and ask both of you to comment on that quickly. So quickly, Senator, thank you for the question, and you're exactly right in terms of the, the structural decline in oil and gas revenue that Russia is confronting. We are working as hard as we can to accelerate that trend. We do that through two mechanisms. One is by accelerating our energy transition, both here in the United States but also globally, as the Biden administration has done through the Inflation Reduction Act, to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels. But the other aspect of this is what we are doing systematically to reduce Russia's future energy revenue. Um, just last week, for instance, we leveled new sanctions against a project in the, in the Arctic, Arctic, uh, Arctic LNG-2, which is Novatech's flagship LNG project, which Novatech set in motion with the aspiration of developing Russia as the largest LNG exporter in the world. Our objective is to kill that project, and we are doing that through our sanctions, working with our partners in the G7 and beyond. I think the other aspect of this, and it goes back to Senator Shaheen's point about the Black Sea, is how we work with the countries that have historically depended on, on, Russian, uh, on Russian energy and have been paying into the Kremlin's resources. Um, we have done that quite successfully in Europe, we need to keep focusing on the, uh, on the Asian front. We do that through the price cap coalition. And I think it's important also to recognize that the price cap has worked in its dual objectives of reducing the Kremlin's revenues while also keeping Russian crude oil on global markets in order not to destabilize further a global energy market that the Kremlin has profoundly destabilized. But let me invite Jim to add. Uh, I completely agree with, with what Jeff has just said. I'll try to focus a little more on the future here. The, um, Russia's losing its lucrative markets. That's what got it rich enough to afford this war. Um, it's losing out in the sectors of innovation that are going to drive economic development in the future. So we look at this and say, does it get put pressure on Putin to get to the table? Well, yes, it does. It's going to take a little time. He started the war with $640 billion in a, a rainy day fund. By the start of this year, despite record profits last year, he was down around 580. We immobilized 300 of that, and he spent down further from there. So that gives him a year, two years maybe of run room on that, that rainy day fund that all came from selling oil and gas. So that's gone. 
The second thing is that we don't see Russia able to play in the sectors that are going to drive innovation and economic growth in the future, the areas of quantum mechanics, artificial intelligence, the energy transition, including the new nuclear technologies that are coming on board. And Senator Risch, your work on this I really appreciate because Russia entangles countries in these long-term networks of corruption with generation-long Rosatom contracts. We're now competing for those again and taking those sectors away from Russia. That changes the, the long-term prospect uh, from what it was. The result of all this is we anticipate that Russia's GDP is going to be at least 20% smaller by 2030 than it would be if Putin had not started this war. So it's a long-term strategic loss for him, and it creates a great opportunity for us in a number of important sectors. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank, thank all of you for your service uh, and your your testimony, and I just want to underscore what the, the chairman and others have said, which all of you know. Uh, this is a moment of truth uh, for the Congress and for the United States uh, in terms of the need, urgent need to continue to support um, our Ukrainian friends. Uh, they, are, they are losing lives and giving blood. The least we can do uh, is provide military assistance. And as all of you indicated, uh, it's important in itself to protect sovereignty and democracy in Ukraine, but this is also a much broader uh, challenge. Uh, if we don't go forward uh, with the continued assistance, it will undermine the NATO alliance and other European partners. And we all know other autocrats around the world like, like President Xi are, are watching very closely as he keeps one eye on Taiwan. Uh, and it would send a terrible message to our allies uh, in the Indo-Pacific, Japan, Republic of Korea, and everybody else. So this is really a, a critical moment uh, for uh, the Congress. And I want to thank all of you and the President for his leadership on this. Um, Ambassador Pyatt, um, thank you for your service uh, in Greece. Uh, and as you well know, uh, you worked on this, one of the key facilities that was built uh, to help supply US-based LNG. Uh, to Ukraine and others in the region was at the port of Alexandropolis. So thank you for that effort. I do want to pick up on some of Senator Murphy's uh, points with respect to the oil price cap. Uh, I'm a big supporter of it. I think it was an innovative approach uh, by uh, the president and our allies uh, to put this price cap on Russian oil. And the impact, as you said, uh, has been to reduce Russian oil revenues. And of course, Oil revenues are the primary source of revenue for Russia and its war machine. Uh, but I do want to talk about further implementation and enforcement of the price cap. Uh, Reuters uh, reported that Russian oil and gas revenues more than doubled in October, uh, just last month, um, compared to September. So a doubling in revenues. And the reports indicate that Russia is using a shadow and gray fleet uh, to help avoid sanctions. And it also raises the question of the extent to which we, uh, the United States, uh, and our partners are really enforcing the price oil cap if, if revenues doubled in one month. Can you, could you speak to that, please? Yeah. Thanks, Senator. And I, I think your question and the data you put on the table illustrates the challenge that markets will try to find a way around these things. So the work that we do with the Office of the Sanctions Coordinator at the State Department, working closely with OFAC, um, 
to keep turning the screws is absolutely critically of critical importance. That's why we recently delivered sanctions against two shipping companies who were found to be operating outside of the price cap, notwithstanding the attestations. That's why both the Treasury and the State Department have in, been intensively engaged with shipping operators and with insurance providers to encourage high standards of scrutiny of the attestations that are part of this process. Um, I think I would, also, I would also highlight the importance of the dialogues that I've had personally um, with key ship, uh, key ship owners in, ship operate, in shipping countries in order to highlight our resolve uh, to continue putting a very bright spotlight on um, activities which are brushing up against the edge of the price cap. Um, fortunately, the vast majority of the global shipping fleet, these are publicly traded companies, oftentimes with uh, headquarters that are, that are housed in, in London or New York, so they are extremely sensitive to the kind of scrutiny um, that the U.S. and our price cap coalition allies can provide. Um, but we do need to keep an eye on this shadow fleet, the growth of the shadow fleet, and the reality that what was up until last year a fairly homogenized global crude oil market has now been bifurcated into two channels. Thank you. If I, if I could, because I see my time's running out, thank you. I just, thank you. We got to keep the pressure on. Um, and uh, my last question relates to uh, the reconstruction effort. Um, we had Scott Nathan, the head of DFC, before this committee um, not that long ago. Uh, as you know, we took OPEC and tried to beef it up uh, into the DFC. Uh, but one of the things that apparently was left behind is OPEC allowed for much more easily available political risk insurance, the way OMB scores it, than DFC. That was not the intention. The intention was for that to be more robust. Are you aware of this issue? And can we fix it so that when it comes to getting more investment in Ukraine under politically and other risky circumstances, we have all the tools available? Thank you, Senator, for your question. And yes, I am aware. Um, and I do know that DFC carries political risk insurance, which embedded in which is war risk insurance, identified as one of the constraints to mobilizing new investors. In addition, we are working very closely to ensure that there's access to finance and capital and other key drivers of growth for those uh, companies that never left Ukraine, including American companies in the agriculture sector, the IT sector in particular, as well as energy and other uh, key areas of opportunity. And I know that Secretary Pritzker is working closely with Scott to make sure that we do all we can collectively to help buy down some of that risk and make those tools available so that we can stimulate the economic growth necessary. I, got, I just understand that the way OMB is scoring this right now is handicapping those efforts. Uh, and so I look forward to following up uh, with all of you on that question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you all for coming in. Um, it's my personal belief, and I've tried to make this argument, that the, the three challenges of what's happening in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits, um, what's happening with Iran's desire to build an Islamist uh, regional order centered on Tehran and what's happening and what Putin has done in Ukraine, that those three things in combination, any one of the three can uh, holds the real risk of escalation and spiraling into something worse. But the combination of the three really are an inflection point that will determine, in my view, much of what the rest of the century is going to look like. It's in that context I think we have to analyze what's happening in Ukraine. I want to be frank with you about our problem. 
Our problem is I'm not sure that that argument from a growing number of people, let me just be colloquial about it and tell you what I hear. People come up to me and say the following. We have five, 6,000 people a day crossing our border. We've got all these other needs. We're running up this enormous debt. Now, obviously, we've got to help Israel. We still have to build up our military because the real risk is China. Where do, why is Ukraine important in that context? I hear that constantly. And I hear that from people that a year and a half ago you know, wanted to do more. I hear that from people you know, that are not necessarily fans of Vladimir Putin. I, I think it's unfair to say that people that have questions about the effort in Ukraine are somehow pro-Putin. I also think um, you know, one of the dangers we face in these three uh, uh, challenges that, that I think are, are definitional for the, the rest of the 100 years, or the rest of the century, is the trade-offs that are going to have to happen. We're going to have to make policy decisions because one of the risks we run is being overextended. Now, I understand, and I'm just not critical, I understand, I agree with all the things about you know, we can't allow borders to be changed unilaterally and we have to stand with our allies. I'm not diminishing any of those things. And I, and I, and, and, but these arguments that, those arguments are too vague. For, uh, they make sense here, but I'm just telling you they're too vague. And I think that they're also, uh, this notion of we need to do whatever it takes or however long it takes is also misguided. Not because that's not necessarily what we need to do, but because that's not going to be enough for people that are asking these questions. So I would just say, if you had an opportunity, any of you three or all you three, to talk to someone, that, say someone that came up to me a week ago and said, why are we still putting all this money in Ukraine? I hate Putin. I, I hate what he's done. But we've got all these other things domestically and in other parts of the world that are more important, including China and now what's happening in the Middle East. How are we going to be spending $60 billion every six months? For how long, given the debt that we already have? What would you say to them? And uh, how would you explain to them that this fits into our national interest in that perspective I've just outlined? I, that's really well framed, Senator, um, so I'll, I'll do my best here. I think the first thing I'd say is you've got to shore up your own base. If we're going to confront the China over the next decades, it's 1 in 1.4 billion people um, that's looking to write the rules that the world economy will run on. We go at them with a coalition of 50-odd countries Europe is about six to 700 million of that. We're 350 million. With that, already, we're set to compete really effectively. Ukraine, though, is a challenge by Putin trying to fray that foundation. So we have to shore that up if we're going to have the, the heft to compete with China over time. The battle over Ukraine also allows us to reinvigorate our own industrial base. We're creating new energy technologies and putting them in place around the world. We're building new defense technologies, the work that's being done in IT. All of that's included in this supplemental, and that's going to make us better able to defend Taiwan, to work in the South China Sea than, than we have otherwise. The final point I'd make is this is the wrong time to walk away, because Ukraine's winning. It's already taken back half the territory Putin sees since February 22. It's opened up the Black Sea grain lanes that Putin tried to shut down in July. Did that mostly with its own creativity around a whole set of interesting drones and other technologies that are going to contribute to our security as Ukraine gets closer to NATO. So those are all reasons you don't walk away when you're partway through the job. I would just add my, um, and thank you for the question. It was uh, well-framed. Um, my dad asked me the same question. Um, why are we supporting Ukraine? And I, the answer that I gave him was that uh, if we don't, American leadership has unlocked 
the alliances and the mobilization of all of the support that we've seen. Number one, we're not alone. We are in this together. And number two, if we falter in our support, Russia will win. And they won't stop at Ukraine. And we have been able to support uh, through economic assistance, humanitarian assistance, and security assistance without having our own soldiers on the ground. And we want to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. Senator Duckworth. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all to the witnesses appearing today. Um, Secretary O'Brien, it's good to see you again so soon. Um, after our discussion during the recent hearing that Senators Shaheen and Ricketts convened on Black Sea regional security, I also had the opportunity to meet with Penny Pritzker just last week, and just yesterday I sat down with the Ukraine's energy minister as well. Um, all of our conversations focus on how bolstering Ukraine's economy today can give them direct returns in terms of their GDP and also more immediate revenues to get them on a stronger path to self-sustainment, even during an, an active war. Bottom line, there's still a lot of work to be done, but also a lot of opportunity here, and moving quickly to pass a supplemental support package is necessary to capitalize on that opportunity. I feel that sense of urgency, particularly as we approach the winter months and the anticipated increase in threats to Ukraine's energy sector. They mentioned to me um, that uh, last year there were 300 direct hits on uh, Ukraine's energy sector, a, a grid or, or a power station or something like that, and, and certainly they anticipate uh, uh, even more drones being massed against their, their power system. Um, so I, you know, I want to associate myself with my colleagues, um, uh, and I, I also appreciate um, your testimony, Secretary Pyatt, about the United States' leadership and support of Ukraine's energy sector. Um, so I'd love to give you a chance to chat about how important Ukraine is to the region in terms of energy and what it can do going towards the future. I, had a, I sat down yesterday and talked at length about um, with their Minister of Energy about SMRs, their leadership role in nuclear, their ability to develop nuclear technology, in particular with American firms like Westinghouse, um, what Romania is doing with SMRs and, and, and all of that. I, I would love for, some, for you to, to speak to that um, and, and how it's important to make these investments now because they can actually contribute towards that energy future, that clean energy future. Thank you, Senator, for the question. And I, I think you, you framed it very well. It's important to recognize that Ukraine is not a charity case. In no. economic and development terms, it's an opportunity. Um, developing that opportunity depends on restoring a level of peace. Um, but as we look to the future, you're going to have a Europe uh, which has decoupled from Russian energy supplies, which means that there's a hole of about 130 BCM per year in energy supply that Europe is going to have to fill. Over the short term, some of that is American LNG, but that's a very expensive option. Ukraine has fantastic resources on wind, on solar, on biomass. It has Europe's second largest civil nuclear industry. It has developed and has demonstrated an extraordinary technological acuity just look at how clever Ukrainian soldiers have been in the application of, 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 uh, of satellites, of drone technology. The same, these are all the skill sets that Ukraine will need to prosper as a member of the European Union. Uh, my colleague, um, Assistant Administrator McKee, referred to the statement which European President von der Leyen delivered today, welcoming the significant progress that Ukraine has made on its reforms and her and the Commission's determination to move ahead with Ukraine's accession to the European Union. 
And I would say, as somebody who served as an American ambassador in the EU for six years, Europe, the, what Ukraine represents, a demographically young population, a population which is fantastically committed to the values of the European Union. Ukraine is the only place in the world where people have fought and died under the flag of the EU for the values that are represented in the European constitutions. So I think um, these, the investments and the leadership that Secretary Pritzker is, is providing to help our companies and companies around the world begin to make plans for the day after and to work with the Ukrainians to keep pushing forward the reforms which are fundamental to creating the environment where American energy companies, renewable energy companies can come into Ukraine, where we can use Ukraine to help to fill the huge challenges that our global supply chain faces. Ukraine, in the Soviet Union, Ukraine was the center of Soviet metallurgy, the center of Soviet um, uh, petrochemicals industries. All of those latent skills are still there. Um, you talked about nuclear. Ukraine has a company in Kharkiv, Turboatom, which is one of the few facilities in all of Europe that has the industrial capacity to produce the large steel enclosures that are part of building modern nuclear reactors. So I applaud your focus on this, and I know I speak for all three of us in how systematically we've, we're focused on trying to lay the foundation for that better future that the Ukrainian people so richly deserve. Thank you. I'm out of time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you. Uh, Secretary O'Brien, maybe you can work with me in going through a series of questions here and some, some rather brief answers. Isn't, isn't it true that um, yeah, our support of Ukraine avoids the need to risk American lives in a larger potential European war by denying Russia the opportunity to send forces into potentially NATO allies? Yes. Isn't it true that uh, the impact of a Ukrainian defeat would be far more expensive than remaining committed to Ukraine? Yes. Isn't it true that what we are doing is creating American jobs by spending funds on modernization of our military, replacing comparatively older weapons that we provide to Ukraine that are not essential to U.S. readiness? Yes, and Secretary Austin was very uh, clear about this in his testimony last week. Isn't it, although this is not our purpose, but isn't it true that Ukraine's operations on the battlefield have exposed Russian weaknesses and operational capacity and readiness, which benefits the United States as we learn about any potential conflict against Russia? Yes. Uh, isn't it also true? that this conflict has catalyzed the U.S. defense industrial base, enabling it to set up production lines necessary to the support the United States and other partners, for example, Taiwan, down the road if necessary. Um, yes, the U.S. and the, the base of our allies as well. Now, isn't it also true that Xi Jinping in China is watching what is going on uh, in Ukraine and how we, the United States and the Western world, uh, is responding to that conflict? I imagine he is. And I would think that not only is he watching, but he's calculating. He's calculating as to, can my military do uh, what I think they can do? And I saw the much vaunted Russian military against, at that time, uh, an inferior fighting force by size and, and capacity uh, be able to stand up to Russia. He's got to be saying that to himself as it relates to any desires on Taiwan. He's got to be saying that to himself as it relates to whether the international community 
is going to respond as the international community has responded on Ukraine by uh, sanctions and other efforts. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, it makes sense to me, Senator. Okay. And isn't it also true uh, that the supplemental dollars, much of which will be spent in the United States here in creating jobs here at home as we support an ally abroad, uh, that uh, that's a positive economic opportunity for us, but the impact of a Russian victory on the European economy and U.S.-European trade, if that was the case, wouldn't that be a huge negative? Yes. So, uh, and then lastly, uh, if we were some of our colleagues here who seem uh, to want to link the critical elements uh, necessary to support Ukraine and for that fact the state of Israel and to support Taiwan, uh, that is all called for in this supplemental, they want to link it to things that have nothing to do with uh, the ability to, for us to help these countries be able to help us stand up for the international proposition that you cannot by force take another country's territory uh, and that you, there are consequences for it. Uh, what would the Europeans, what would the world say if we walked away from Ukraine, if we said, okay, no mas, enough? What would be the consequence of that? Oh, I, I think the world would judge us weaker and foolish for walking away from a tremendous opportunity to build the alliance that's, that's brought us here. And not only would it say that we're weaker and foolish, who would join us if they know that at some point we will cut and run? I, I think, Senator, the question answers itself. No one. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thanks, thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, Mr. Pyatt, just uh, wanted to ask this. I'm just listening to uh, Senator Menendez using the words weaker and foolish. So in late 2021, the State Department sent an interim international energy engagement guidance to embassies essentially barring the U.S. government support for future fossil fuel projects. This could affect terminals in Europe, currently uh, would be receiving U.S. LNG. Shortly after the cable went out, Putin's armies invaded Ukraine. It's astonishing to me that the same administration that issued this foolish anti-American energy guidance refused to impose sanctions on Putin's Nord Stream 2 pipeline before the war. Seems like the administration would rather sanction American energy. So does the policy outline in this cable still remain in effect? Senator, the energy engagement guidance remains in effect, but I would also note that the geopolitics of energy after February of 2022 looks different. Um, the United States is now the world's largest LNG producer, and we are going to retain that status for years and years to come. Europe looks to the United States for its energy security. Europe is the largest market for American LNG. That will continue for years to come. 70% of our LNG exports last year helped Europe to escape its dependence on Russia. So I think the landscape has changed, and the, I would note also that the energy and gui guidance was drafted with carefully defined exceptions, including exceptions both for humanitarian development reasons and also for geopolitical reasons. And that's a lot of the work that I do and my team does is thinking about those geopolitical arguments. Well, thank you. I, I regret that it still remains in, in effect and I would love to see it, uh, see it eliminated. Um, Ms. McKee. The, uh, I want to talk about Ukrainian children. One of the biggest victims of Russia's unprovoked war 
are Ukrainian children. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the world watched Russian President Putin bomb orphanages, attack schools, shell children's hospitals. Um, that's not enough. Russia is also uh, abducting, transferring, and forcefully, forcefully uh, adopting thousands of Ukrainian children. Uh, they're just taken away. Almost a year ago, the U.S. ambassador to Russia committed to me on this committee to address the issue. She pledged that uh, to coordinate with U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink, and I met with uh, Ambassador Brink last week uh, to document and expose these horrible practices. Uh, Ambassador Tracy also promised to help get these children back to their parents. So please update me on the status of the efforts. Thank you, Senator, for your question. And, and I would agree wholeheartedly that the uh, most tragic victims of the conflict are, are the Ukrainian children who have been forcibly ripped from their homes and their homeland. Uh, we are working closely with um, several organizations to not only uh, connect those dots that Ambassador Tracy and Ambassador Brink uh, signaled to you that we are committed to, um, but we are documenting and ensuring that the follow-up to be able to return them, if they were orphans, to some family member who can be identified through DNA testing and other uh, tracing elements, as well as ensuring that the pipeline, if you will, uh, from uh, Russian-occupied territory back into Russia and other places is severed as quickly as possible. And that requires courage and bravery on the part of those that are inside those areas to identify, stand up for, and share the names and locations with us. So I can't, in this setting, share with you a significant amount of detail, but I can tell you that we are laser focused and that I know Ambassador O'Brien and the State Department and uh, Ambassador Van Schock are also focused on this uh, terrible um, uh, collateral, if you will, of Putin's wanton aggression. Yeah. Do you have a general range on how many Ukrainian children the U.S. may have helped reunite with their families at this point? I'll have to get back to you with that number. Okay. And uh, in this setting, what you can in terms of what system has been established? You said you couldn't go into all the specific details, but could you talk a little bit about the system that's been established to document and expose the practices by Russia? We have a network that started before the invasion of basically access to justice and sort of legal aid clinics. The, that network employed about 20 attorneys and we had seven sites. Today, we have over 22 with over 70 attorneys that are providing legal advice and guidance to those who fear their children have been taken, as well as starting to document and create the files so that ultimately accountability and prosecution can take place. And then final question, if I may, Mr. Chairman, this is to um, Mr. O'Brien. In terms of a counteroffensive, five months ago, Ukraine launched its counteroffensive against Russian forces. Since then, the gains at the front line have been limited, positive but limited. Last month, President Zelensky said Ukraine's success in the battle for the Black Sea will go down in history books, although it's not being discussed much today. So what's needed for Ukraine to be even more successful in their, in their counteroffensive, and you know, what strategies have been most effective in pushing back? Um, certainly, a, a, a military briefing in a classified setting would let me go in, or to more and maybe a more expert witness. I'd tell you two things. Ukraine has won back 50% of the territory Russia took since February of 22. The second piece that's um, important, Putin is playing a waiting game, mm -hmm. like many Muscovite rulers before him. So it's difficult to get a decisive battle. Yeah. So what we need is what's in the supplemental, that is the ability to fight this fight over some time. And we do see real success. So in the Black Sea, uh, Russia attempted to stop Ukraine from exporting 
In July, exports were down two to two and a half million tons. They're already more than double and expect to see them go up substantially more. That's because of what Ukraine has done with its technology and its new weapon systems, more of which would be provided by the supplemental. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Risch. Thank all of you for your service. I appreciate it. Uh, good messages you had here for us today. If I can send one message back to the administration, and that is uh, this, the, the th this thing can't go on forever. There's no question about it. Patients will wear thin, and uh, it's not a good situation. I've been an advocate from the beginning about uh, giving the Ukrainians everything that shoots short of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, nuclear, and uh, they... Uh, administration has always responded with, oh, we don't want to escalate. You've got to escalate. If you don't escalate, you're going to lose. And uh, so uh, they, they, by the way, they've done eventually everything I've asked them to do. Uh, we, they still need to do more on the attackums, uh, and I want to see the F-16s. Give it to them and let them get this thing over with so we can move on. So that's my message is uh, let's, let's act like we want to win this and let's move it as quickly as we can. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the, the record will remain open to the end of business tomorrow for questions for the record. I ask that you respond. Friday is a legal holiday. And with that, and our thanks again for everything you've done for our country and for being here today, the hearing will be adjourned. <laughs>